but you can sit down. <laughs> well, you might notice that Pastor John's not here today. He had this flimsy excuse that his daughter was getting married today. So we wish the Lord's blessing on them in Philadelphia as they celebrate that marriage today. But you guys are in for a treat because today we have our brother Terry Hoke with us. Terry is a longtime BIC pastor, and we've come to know and love him over the years, and we just really appreciate his ministry and are thankful to have him here with us today. So, Brother Terry, come on and share with us. Happy to have you, brother. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's pray for Pastor John. Father, you know where he is today. You know what he's doing today. You know the challenge it is to his heart. And we thank you that the walkers can share together this very special day in the life of their daughter. And so we lift them up to you, Father. And we, we just pray that you would, your presence would not only be here, as we have just been singing, but there with them. May their hearts be filled with joy. May this day be a true blessing in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I was walking in the Martin store a couple of months ago, and I turned the corner, and there was Pastor John. And he said, hey, would you be willing to preach for me sometime in December? I said, you always ask me for December. And he said, yes, I do. This is a special day. And I thought, yes, I can do that. Because what you see here was supposed to have happened on the 19th of October. It didn't. It happened Tuesday. And I thought, okay. So I asked the doctor... Am I going to be bruised and black and blue? And he said, oh, definitely. <laughs> I said, can I still preach that Sunday? If they can stand to look at you. I said, that's the problem every time. <laughs> Nothing new here. And I didn't want to let Pastor John down, so after it was postponed, I decided I can do this. So I'm glad to be here. I really am. It's, it's exciting always to be uh, in the presence of God's family, and uh, particularly here at Fairview Avenue. And John has asked me to preach uh, in December several times, and, and that's all right. He always was headed somewhere, Canada, some foreign country. I'm not sure. But anyway, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 1. Very short uh, Sermon I want to, or sermon, scripture I want to read from Acts chapter 1. You probably don't even have to turn there. You probably know this verse by heart, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Period. That's the verse for the day. End result of some of this is I do have to wear these. If you see me looking down and going, 
Huh? Either I don't have them on or I still can't read. My dad was a carpenter, and he was a very good carpenter. He could take a house where, from the very beginning, pour the footers. I remember well the times that he would, he would lay out the, house, the foundation and the footers, and he'd be there when they poured the concrete, and he'd be measuring. He'd be doing all kinds of things, and he could wire your house, do the plumbing in your house, build the cabinets in your house. He could do all that. Unfortunately, he taught me how to be a destructor, not a constructor. I was good at tearing things apart, but that's what I was good for. The one thing he did teach me was he taught me the importance of having a firm foundation. He did all that measuring because you had to do all that measuring. And the bigger the building, the bigger the house that he was working on, he helped to build the J. Frank Faust Junior High School. It was junior high school at that point. And uh, I'm not sure what they call it today. But all of that stuff, he was involved from the very beginning to the very end when that school was dedicated and uh, he taught me, you have to build on a firm foundation. Jesus is the example of what it means for us to build on a firm foundation. When he began his mission, it was a personal thing and a ministry of a little more than three years, as, as we know. And one of the key aspects involved in that was the calling of the 12 disciples that he called apostles. The importance of, of that approach can't be emphasized enough, nor can it be overlooked. We're standing on the cusp of Christmas. This was a great part of, it was a major part of what it means to be a Christian. Had Jesus said, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be one of them. Let's keep trying what we've been trying over the years. We would not be here. But he said yes. The story is told, and I don't know who told it. I don't have the name to reference. I would tell you if I knew that when Jesus ascended into heaven following his days of teaching and preaching after he was resurrected, one of the angels came to him and said, Lord, what plan do you have to continue the work that you began on earth? And without hesitation, Jesus answered, I left it in the hands of the apostles. Another angel standing close by said, what if they fail? Without hesitation, Jesus answered, I have no other plan. The words, you will be my witnesses, are the key to the ongoing mission in the whole book of Acts. If you, if you miss that part, you will be my witnesses. The whole book of Acts is just fumbling through. That's the key part right there. In Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, you find the God-fearing Jews were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate what I think was the Passover. It was some kind of celebration that they got together for once a year, and then when it was over, they just scattered. They went everywhere. And I think it might have been the Passover. There's no indication that it was or wasn't 
So if you think it was some other celebration, it was a bunch of God-fearing Jews. You can't deny that part. It's right there. So Peter gets them all together, and he lays it on the line, Acts chapter 2, 22 to 24, and he tells the people, it's all because of you that Jesus Christ was crucified. You decided to side with some evil people, and you were probably, it doesn't tell me this, but you, they were probably a part of that crowd that was yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And let me tell you something about a sermon. There's no such thing as a good sermon or a bad sermon. The, the sermon is something that you bring the message, and if God shows up, something's going to happen. I hope he shows up here today. In this case, God showed up. The people turned and said to the disciples and Peter, after he explained all this to them, brothers, what should we do? And they said, repent and be baptized. And on that day, God showed up, didn't he? 3,000 people believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. 3,000. They wouldn't fit here. 3,000 people. What makes this passage so fascinating is not what is recorded, it's what, uh, it's what happened in between verses 41 and 42. We know that the Holy Spirit fell upon them as, as Jesus promised, but how did the apostles go about getting all those people together in a devoted fellowship? Doesn't tell us. But I believe we can settle the question easily enough by recognizing that God showed up. We need to recognize that when God shows up, something miraculous can happen. And it did. Now, here were the apostles. I, I heard, heard you're signing up for different things. One of those was a, was a, a meal of some kind. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Here's the apostles. They've got 3,000 people who are now new Christians, and what are they going to do with them? Uh, if you don't sign up, don't come to the meal, right? They all signed up. Crazy. Three thousand converts, and most of them planning just to hat out and go home. But God, through the apostles, had other plans. The apostles had been given a commission. What was that commission? If you still have your Bible open, turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Here's the commission. Was the commission just to go make converts? No, hardly. This is what it says in Matthew 28, beginning with verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, oh my, and teaching them, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He didn't say go make converts. Disciples are made, not born. He said, go and teach them. I, I, by the way, I wouldn't have any trouble reading. I just wanted you to get that fact that he said, go and teach them. 
Go and teach them, go and teach them, go and teach them to obey everything I've taught you. All right? John 15, 7 and 8 says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Disciples were those whom a teacher called out. A teacher chose. Now, you could go to one of the teachers of that day, and you could ask, Can I, I've watched your life, I see what you're doing, and uh, I really would like to be a follower of yours. Would you teach me what I need to know to be like you? But for the most part, the teacher chose. And he could tell you flat out, no, you don't qualify. It's not going to work. I know that ahead of time. And he, but you, on the other hand, you I choose to be my follower. I think that we, the church, have done a great disservice to the call of God. A great disservice. Let me tell you why I, th- I say that. In many of my conversations with pastors, and that's what I do nowadays, I coach the next generation of pastors, uh, I ask this question. How many in your congregation have been discipled into Jesus? And folks, I have to tell you something. I'll ask you this. How many in this room have been discipled? Wonderful. That's amazing. Because the average, in all my coaching, the average is 6%. 6%. I'm coaching a pastor who has a church of 65. That's 3.9 people out of 65. I'm coaching a pastor who has a church of 1,500. That's 90 people. That's 1,410 people who have never been discipled. Your figure, just with the raising of your hands, is higher than 6%. That is fantastic. Maybe I'm preaching the wrong sermon. However, there were still more hands down than there were up. We've done a good job of discipling people by welcoming making them welcome when they come through the door of the church. And we, we shake hands, we bump elbows, you hug, you do whatever. And we've done a fairly decent job when they decide to stick around and stay for a while. We've done a fairly decent job of inviting them to come in and be a part of the Brethren in Christ Church. I have taught over and over that little red book, three-ring binder, on being brethren in Christ. That tells them who we are and opens the door to say to them, hey, this is who we are. Do you agree with where we stand and how we interpret Scripture? But does it teach them how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I think we've done a great disservice to the call of God. Because we're good at bringing them in. We're good at teaching them what we think is right. But what about Jesus? How many are here? Now, and I've already done this part, so I will tell you. I'll skip that part. I've had you raise your hand. 
I had my hand up. I, I, should not have, I should have put my hand down. I was not discipled to how to be a transformed follower of Jesus Christ. The pastor was busy. He was visiting the sick. He was visiting the visitors. He was doing all kinds of things. Now, he did invite me into his home, and I held his daughter on my lap. I wouldn't do that now because she's 40 years older. But uh, she's more than that older, actually, now that I think about it. She's 55 years older. But anyhow, you see, I gave my life to Christ when I was in, a junior in high school. At a Billy, Billy Graham film, The Restless Ones, that the pastor took a whole busload of us from the school to J. Frank Faust Junior High School. And... I saw the movie, and I was the first one out of my seat. But Pastor John was busy. Here's the amazing thing. Pastor John's still busy, and he's still preaching. And I still love him. But he didn't disciple me. So what were the apostles to do with these converts? Just stand there and let them walk away? Hardly. On another occasion, you might recall when Jesus uh, took Peter aside and he said, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than you love these? And Peter said, yes, Lord. You know I love you. And he said in response, feed my lambs. So he asked him again, same question. And Peter responded the same way. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my sheep. And he asked him the third time, if you were asked the same question three times in a row, does that get on your nerves like it does mine? I mean, come on, I told you I love you. Now let's move on. Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. You see... Christ started out by picturing the new converts as lambs, and then he proceeded to tell Peter to feed my sheep and not stop feeding my sheep. So here they have 3,000 new lambs. Huh. I just told somebody earlier, I did an 11-month interim position at, at uh, Paramount Church after Jim Stauffer retired. I tore that thing off every week. I did it again. So, you think I'd, in 11 months you'd learn something, but apparently not. Jesus started out picturing the new converts as lambs, and then he proceeded to teach Peter that his role was not to end until the lambs became sheep and then take care of my sheep. Make sure you take care of them. So, here were 3,000 lambs, newly born into the kingdom of God, and Jesus' mandate was that they must be fed, they must be discipled, go and make disciples, go and make disciples, in order to provide food and housing for those who needed to be fed and discipled. What were these guys going to do? These people had no intention of ever staying in Jerusalem. They didn't bring all this stuff with them. They were going to stay there for a while, and then they were going to go home. And now, all of a sudden, they didn't want to go anywhere. They wanted to know more. So this is what the, I think the disciples taught them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, 
and love your neighbors as yourself. And the reason I think that's what they taught them is because in Acts chapter 2, it says they all got together, they shared whatever they had, and everybody, nobody left town. If you didn't have enough, that's okay. Lesson. Lesson learned, right? If you have an attitude of loving on others and loving with the love of Jesus, and you've just heard this fantastic message from Peter, and 3,000 people responded, and you're one of those 3,000, what you have needs to be shared in love, freely given. Now, there's not much mention of these new converts in the book of Acts, but I believe that they became like little children who watched their parents, and they watched their, uh, what they're doing, and they watched their parents as uh, who they hang out with, that kind of thing. And I believe that these new converts were watching as the apostles were beaten and threatened and hauled off to jail for their testimony for, for Christ. And they observed, I, I said earlier, if you don't get this Acts 1.8, you won't, the rest of the book won't open up to you the book of Acts, this, what I just said was, I think they watched as the apostles were beaten and threatened and hauled off to jail, Acts 4, 17, Acts 5, 18, Acts uh, 5, 40, and they observed how the, the apostles preached the gospel at every opportunity, and they were there as the apostles responded with joy to the persecution that faced them. I don't like persecution. But the apostles responded with joy. And these people were looking around going, I, this is my take. They put you in jail? They beat you? They threatened you? Stop preaching this? And you responded with joy? Is there something wrong with you? Instead, they responded, I want a piece of that. I want to know that. I want, to, I want I want that to, not only do I want to own it, I want that joy to own me. How many of us have tried our best to live before others an example of what it means to be full of the joy of Jesus, to be a true follower of Jesus, to live it out? so that others might become a disciple of him as well. And I'm talking about in the up times and the down times, in the good times and the bad times, and persecution and hardship, as shining lights in the, in the midst of the darkness. How many of us are living out our faith and trust in Jesus and the one true God in order that others might put in the effort to be a follower, not of us, but of the Lord that we know and serve. Then came the hour of testing. They were tested. After the death of Stephen, a tremendous persecution came against the new believers. Acts 8.1 says, on that day, a great, not a mild, but a great persecution broke out against the church. 
It's, it's a lot like what's going on today, folks, if we pay attention to what's going on in our world today. There's a lot of persecution going, coming towards the church. I'm so glad you're all here because you haven't given up. And I know there's people out there uh, watching as well. You have not given up. Even though the persecution is evident in our world today, there's a takeover trying to be made. How many of us are putting in the effort to be a follower, not of teaching others to be a follower, not of us, but of Christ? A great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, the exact areas that Jesus spoke of in Acts 1.8. They fled, but not in panic. They didn't go in panic. They went and took the message out. Just keep reading. Just keep reading. This is a fantastic book if you get that first part. You know why the apostles were not sent away, that why they didn't go out? Why the people went out? Because Gamaliel said, don't mess with those 12 guys. If this thing is really of the Lord, you can't stop it. If it's not of the Lord, it'll die out just like the rest of them. But those 3,000 people have watched the apostles be beaten and threatened and thrown in jail with joy, they kept on preaching. How often do we give up? Therefore, the Bible says, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, and what were they doing? Preaching the word. And as we think of our ministry, the ministry of the church at large, when it comes to making disciples, we need to take this account seriously. If we want to see a certain performance or a certain attitude, a certain life change develop in those that we have contact with, we must follow the work of disciple-making as well. I am so happy to see so many hands go up and say, I was discipled. Can I see it again? Oh, man. Honey, look around. You know who the only person... I've preached this one other time. And the only person that raised her hand was that there, that lady right there. One. I felt, it, I felt the need to preach it here because it's Advent and we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And without him, nothing. Without those 3,000 people going out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be here. You think about it. We'd be actually, kind of bluntly, dead in the water. We would have no hope. But because those 3,000 said, we watched all this go on. And they went out to, in Jerusalem, out to Judea, out to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and Jesus Christ never left them. He promised he would never leave us And he didn't. So the challenge is, at least part of the challenge, go and make disciples. We've got to remember the tremendous power of personal example. 
So the first question I would ask you is, how are you discipling yourself? And then, how are you living before others that they might see Jesus in you? And then, do you see the necessity of making disciples? Not just converts, not a one-and-done prayer, but making disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you see the necessity of doing that? Someone has said the church is never more than one generation away from having no influence in the world. I have to tell you how thrilled I was when I saw this many young people come up here and surround those candles. And I'm still looking across this congregation and I see young people here and a young person over there and uh, some young people in the back. I was going to say I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. It touches me because you folks are doing something here that other places that I have been are not doing. There's a whole lot more gray beards. And they're struggling. So congratulations. I just sent the pastor that has a church of 1,500. I just sent him a book called Already Gone. And it's about the lack of young people. People who've grown up in the church. And when they get to a certain age, they go off to school, they do whatever, get a job, and they don't come back to church. I love this place. I, I just see so many different age groups here. Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. I told John, I said, wow, John, thanks for having me. This is encouraging. Woohoo! I love it. Elton Trueblood, Trueblood, in his book, Alternative to Futility, wrote this. He said, once the church was a brave and revolutionary fellowship, changing the course of history by the introduction of discordant ideas. Today, it's a place where people go and sit on comfortable benches, waiting patiently until time to go home to their Sunday dinners. He went on to say, many have refused to join the church, not because the church has demanded too much, but because it's demanded too little. Their criticism is not that the church is too different from the world, but it's too much like the world. The humiliating truth is that no Christian fellowship has ever truly challenged them. But you say, Terry, I don't have time to disciple myself. I don't have time to disciple anyone else. To be a disciple of Jesus. There's a challenge here that I heard Francis Chan described this way. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2 because this is what Francis Chan said about 1 John chapter 2 verse 6. He said, you really, 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 really like Jesus. But if, you, if you're honest with yourself, you don't really want to become like him. You admire his humility. We all do. But do you really want to be that humble? 
I mean, you think it's beautiful, we all think it's beautiful that the Son of God would get down on his knees and wash the feet of his disciples. We think that's beautiful. But is that really your goal in life? And is your life headed in, direction, in that direction of servanthood? You're thankful that Jesus was spit on and abused and that he took it, but you'd never let that happen to you. You love the fact that he laid down his rights, but you're, you're going to spend your life fighting for yours and defending yours. You praise him. You sing songs. And you love him because he loved you enough to suffer during his whole time on this earth for your sake. But you're going to make sure you have fun down here. And you're going to have a good time. In short... You think that Jesus is a great Savior, but he's not a great role model. And I say that because I'll give messages, and it's, it's about the character of Christ Jesus and how we ought to follow that character. And it's met with this. Uh, hey, uh, really? I mean, I can have this and I can have that. I can do this and, and, and I can do that. Jesus is a great Savior. But he's not a good role model. And I just got to say, stop. Wait a minute. Is Jesus Christ your role model? Did he come without reason? Is he your role model? Think this through. Is it the desire of your heart that you would be the servant and lay down your life for someone else? Now, if you turned to 1 John, this is what it says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It's not an option, folks. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It's not, it, it's not this optional thing that says, well, maybe I can be a Christian and admire everything about Jesus, but my life will look nothing like his. No, no, it's not an option. He came as a baby in a manger. He grew into a man and lived somewhere around 30, 33 years. He was put on a cross by weak followers of God. God's the Jews all had gathered, 3,000 of them plus probably, there in Jerusalem. Weak followers. And Peter stood up and he said to them, you hung him there. So my challenge to you today is, look to Jesus. 
if you say you live in him, you must walk, I must walk as Jesus did. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to Galatians chapter 5. That's the, the, the section that, that says the, the, gifts of the, the gift of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and all that. I invite you to turn there sometime and read what it says in the verses before that. It says the sinful people live like this, and there's a whole list of things. And I know of one of those that I really, really struggle with. Probably more, but I know of at least one that I really struggle with. And then I, lo- then I look at the rest and it says, the gift of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness. And I think, that's the character of Jesus. That's the way he was. So, John says no. You can't say you are one thing and live another way. Whoever claims to live in him, whoever claims to have Jesus in him, must walk as Jesus did. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the coming of Jesus Christ, your son, your one and only son who gave himself on the cross of Calvary on behalf of each one in this room who claims to know him and have him living in them. Me too. Lord, help us to recognize that we don't need to disciple people into the Brethren in Christ Church, the Fairview Avenue Church, any church. We need to disciple people into Jesus Christ so that along with us, the eyes are looking at them and looking at us, and along with all of us, we are walking as Jesus did to your glory. In his precious name we pray, amen.